How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so you don't have to. We're the three guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies. And the people that made them so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. I'm your other host, Justin Bishop. And I stopped using, I'm going to stop using film historian, which Todd, Todd wants me to call myself a film historian, but I took this from Dan Carlin, who some would call a historian. Don't roll your eyes, Todd. That man is a legend. <laughs> <laughs> thanks he, dan he calls he himself a really successful a, podcast called hardcore history yeah yeah he's great and he calls himself a a fan of history uh because he doesn't do like he's not going digging through the archives and things like that he's reading the research that actual historians have done so i will now refer to myself as a fan of film history not a historian myself so what are you doing if not reading the if what is what is the archives, if not the stuff that other people have done? Mm, uh, we'll get into it later. <laughs> Film archivist. <laughs> I'm not an archivist, though. Oh, God. Anyway, introduce yourself, Todd. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. Boom, 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 boom. Now, you may think co-hosting Cinema Shock is all drudgery. Boom, boom. Unwrapping behind-the-scenes stories and checking our facts against multiple sources. One, two, three. But I love it. And we think that you'll love this seventh final bonus episode of our examination of the life career of John Waters. Waters, Waters. And his collaborations with Divine in our series titled, titled, titled... Divine filth. I was not expecting that. <laughs> it, it's, it's the exact same intro I did last week. Only I sang it. Uh, was that singing? I don't know if that counts as singing. It's uh, what I can do with it, what I've got, Justin. Gary was a... Th- Listen, were, if you're not you going to be a film historian, then I'll I, do whatever I want. <laughs> Gary, weren't you a musical theater major? Yeah. Wow. So you should just sing this whole episode. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what's funny. Nope, is no is, pressure. I did do that, and I love musicals. Went over. <laughs> I love musicals, and I did do that, and I have no desire to do whatever Todd just did. <laughs> that's what uh, I do, and, fellas. I take yeah. the bullets for the show, man. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you took a bullet from a gun that you fired yourself, though. That's true. <laughs> so, that's true. <laughs> There's like a hundred different so ways to go. The least you can do is call yourself a film historian, Justin Bishop. 
Oh, well, so over the course of the last six episodes, we have discussed John Waters' career from its beginnings in the underground film scene in Baltimore through his success on the Midnight Movie Circuit and all the way through his somewhat unintentional mainstream breakthrough with his 1988 film Hairspray. And while Hairspray was successful during its theatrical run and even more so once it hit home video, its greatest success came a couple of decades later when it was adapted into a Broadway musical which itself was adapted into a film in 2007. So for this, the final episode in our series, John Waters' Divine Filth, we're going to discuss the story behind the aforementioned Broadway show and the musical film remake of Hairspray. It was a time of tradition, a time of values, a time... People who are different, their time is coming. ...to shake things up. Not in Baltimore, it isn't. For anyone who ever wanted something bigger... Dancing on that show is my dream. <laughs> there comes a time to break all the rules. Want to be one of the nicest kids in town? Cut school tomorrow and come to audition. No one in this house is auditioning for anything. But, Ma... Amber? Save your personal life for the camera, sweetie. Oh! Shiny. When you follow your own beat. Well, we get any more white people in here, it's gonna be a suburb. There's no limit to how far you can go. Hairspray. This is America. You gotta think big to be big. Big ain't the problem in this family, Wilbur. Well, Hairspray's journey to the bright lights of Broadway began around 1990 when it was announced that a producer named Scott Rudin had obtained the rights to develop a stage show based on the film. And then, uh, well, nothing happened at all. Uh, Rudin, he he got the rights and then he just like didn't do anything with them. He let the rights lapse and the idea kind of disappeared for a while. It's weird how this works because then in like 1998, the project was revived by an independent Broadway producer named Margot Lyon. Lyon's biggest hit as a producer at the time. You might know the two-part play Angels in America. I almost said Angels at Airwaves. Uh, which very different the law of the side <laughs> project. Uh, anyway uh margo lyon did angels in america it was in 93 now didn't yeah, that yeah. didn't that get turned into a series or mini series or something like that yeah it was an hbo series which uh won a lot of awards i think i recall uh, it winning Al a lot Pacino. of stuff yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 it was like meryl street maybe was in it and like that mm-hmm. sounds right yeah yeah the the play was like a big deal when it came out it was tony kushner it won a pulitzer prize it won a bunch of tony awards uh like it was a, it was a pretty it was a big hit probably boring <laughs> <laughs> no musical numbers in that one it, 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 <laughs> yeah if it ain't got killing or singing i ain't interested uh, anyway so margo's deal was uh while she's trying to figure out what the next show she might do might be she came across hairspray on television one day she just started watching it she got drawn in she really thought this would be an awesome stage musical probably right lion reached out to mark shaman i think i said that correctly i think it's shaman uh, I it believe. might be shaman <laughs> yeah he might be a shaman i've been uh, saying shaman in my head so <laughs> well so mark he shaman he, he's a he's a musician uh, he was actually the perfect choice for this because he got to start early on working with saturday night live in the 80s collaborated a lot on Rob Ryder stuff. He wrote the music for South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, and Team America World Police, which I didn't realize is going to matter to me a little bit later, and I'll tell you why. But uh, <laughs> I just love the he, idea that this guy wrote America, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, I do too. <laughs> and Uncle Fucker. Oh. <laughs> I mean, he's not, the, yeah. he's not the lyricist. He's just writing the music. Uh, he's not the lyricist, but That's he had to contribute point. to both of those. <laughs> 
That's great. And, and did some Rob Ryder stuff. So yeah, perfect. Anyway, he agreed to work on this thing as long as his writing partner, who was Scott Whitman, could be involved as well. Uh, so Lyon agreed to all this. Then they began working on a few initial songs. They recorded a demo with Nathan Lane actually singing the part of Edna Turnblad. That was yeah. the best opportunity. Look at that. Uh, he's great in it. Have you heard it? No, no, I haven't heard it. Oh, there's a there's a great behind-the-scenes documentary on the Hairspray Blu-ray that I've got that uh, John Waters starts talking about this part, and they actually play a little clip of, of Nathan Lang singing um, You're Timeless to Me on the demo, and it sounds oh. great. I mean, I, I love... You know, everyone else who's played that part, but Nathan Lane did a pretty stellar job on that. You can totally see Nathan Lane in that role for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that'd uh, be fun. And what's the once they got that demo, the uh Lion hit up John Waters and gave him a copy of that demo, telling him, I'll always try to honor your voice. I will not make a generic Broadway show, and got John Waters' blessing. So that led Lion on the uh path to secure the rights uh to the film from you guessed it new line who's always yeah, involved in this well new line yeah. still owns the rights to hairspray so she had to go through them she was really just going through john waters to kind of get his blessing like she could have made it without getting john waters blessing but she wanted john waters to like say this was okay one thing that should also be noted is mario lyon was born in baltimore so she probably uh, has a, a bit of a reverence for John Waters, I would imagine, as mm-hmm. as a lot of artists from the Baltimore area probably do. Oh. Yeah, so she got John Waters, not permission, but yeah, his blessing to do this. And then, yeah, New Line, she goes through that whole rigmarole, gets the rights to the movie, and then she starts hiring other people to work on it. So first she, uh, she hires her writers, the book for the musical was uh, written by Mark O'Donnell. And then uh, Thomas Meehan, who had recently had success with another movie term musical with Mel Brooks's uh, The Producers on Broadway, uh, yeah. he was brought in to help kind of punch up the dialogue in it. So Mark O'Donnell and Thomas Meehan kind of co-wrote the book for the play. Then Lyon contacted Rob Marshall about directing the musical. So Marshall at the time, I'm sure as a movie fan, you've probably you probably recognized Rob Marshall's name. But at the time, he was a uh, pretty prominent choreographer and director on Broadway. But when Lyon reached out to him, he was actually in negotiations to direct his first film, which was the film version of Chicago. But he agreed that he would help on the development of Hairspray with the caveat that he'd have to drop out of Chicago if that movie ended up moving forward, which, of course, we all know is exactly what ended up happening. Uh, Chicago, also starring Jane Eastwood. That's in the Hairspray and Queen Latifah. Yeah. However, also almost equal to the amount of death that happens per capita yearly in uh, Baltimore. (laughs) (laughs) They Chicago almost starred John Travolta as well. Uh, They tried to get John Travolta to play the the part that originally, that eventually went to Richard Gere uh, in in Chicago, but he turned it down. He turned down a lot of musicals over the years. Uh, Everyone wanted John Waters, or or, excuse me, John Travolta for musicals because of Greece, obviously. But uh, he turned most of them down, including Chicago, which I think he later described as a mistake. Since it won a lot of Oscars, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, although Richard Gere is great in it, he is he is very good in the film. Anyway, the what hamster. are we talking? <laughs> Let's not talk about the hamster. That's a that's an urban legend. Speaking <laughs> of diving deep urban... into movies, that's what we're all about here on Cinema Shock. <laughs> 
that hamster dove deep is what Todd's saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, during his time working on the show, Marshall did make some significant contributions to it, including hiring an actress named Melissa Jaron Winokur to play the role, uh, the lead role of Tracy Turnblad, a role for which she would later win a Tony Award for Best Leading Actress, among many other awards that she won for that role. So once Marshall had to move on, start working on the Chicago movie, Margot Lyon hired Broadway veterans Jack O'Brien and Jerry Mitchell to direct and choreograph the show, respectively. And since Divine had played Tracy's uh, mother, Edna, in the original film, uh, Shaman really wanted to maintain the tradition of casting a man in the lead role. And uh, they cast the great Harvey Firestein as Edna Turnblad. And I, I love Harvey Firestein as an, as an actor. Uh, I think he is one of the most like unique, distinct actors. I mean, everybody knows who he is, even if you don't know his name. Like yeah. if you've seen Harvey Firestein in a movie, if you've seen obviously Mrs. Doubtfire or Independence Day, he's very memorable in Independence Day. I mean, those are probably mm -hmm. the two more mainstream, two of the more mainstream roles he's been in. But even if you didn't know his name, I guarantee you, you remembered his voice. I was going to say, he has a very distinct, <laughs> honey, I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> David, why did I just send my mother to Atlanta? <laughs> that was really good. Thank you. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> well, after a successful tryout run in Seattle, Hairspray opened on Broadway at the Neil Simon Theater on August 15th, 2002. And the, mu the musical was a huge success both critically and commercially. It was nominated for 13 Tony Awards at the 2003 ceremony, winning eight of those 13, including the awards for Best Musical, Book, Score, and Direction. Uh, Winokur, Firestein, and Dick Latessa, who played Wilbur Turnblad, all received awards for their performances in the play. And the production ran for more than six years for a total of 2,642 performances. And it would later open in London's West End. It opened in Australia. It opened in Las Vegas for a while. And it has been on regular national and international tours consistently since 2003. Well, all this means is that when New Line who optioned the rights to, to Margot to make the play, when they started seeing the success that the show was being met with on Broadway, they started seeing dollar signs, and they got to work pretty much immediately on adapting the stage show into a musical film. Because they're smart thinkers, that new line. Well, they're in the they're in the business to make money. You're leaving money on the table if you don't try to adapt this into a film at this point. So New Line hired Craig Zayden and Neil Marin to executive produce Hairspray. Now, Zayden and Marin, they had a long history of adapting Broadway shows to film and television. Uh, they had done like the Cinderella that was with Brandy and Whitney Houston and oh, Whoopi yeah. Goldberg. I think it aired on, on NBC uh, back in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And that was mm -hmm. a huge success. Uh, and they had actually recently served as executive producers on Rob Marshall's Chicago, which, of course, won the Oscar for Best Picture. So they've, they've got a pretty good track record at this point. Yeah, I forgot all about that ever being a thing. Yeah, Chicago's great. I love that movie. Do you remember when Brandy did that song, The Boy Is Mine, with Monica? I sure do. How, I think about it every day. How hot Monica is. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, Brandy, too. She's She uh, could get it. But Yeah, Mo <laughs> oh, Moesha herself. <laughs> well... Thomas Meehan and Mark O'Donnell, who are the authors of the book for the stage musical, they wrote the first draft of the screenplay for, for the Hairspray movie, but they were later replaced by Leslie Dixon, who was an experienced screenwriter who had worked on movies such as Mrs. Doubtfire and the 2003 Freaky Friday remake. So they had some experience with, uh, I guess, movies where a guy dresses up in drag and <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire and, you know, family-friendly stuff. 
like Freaky Friday. But it did take the producers nearly an entire year to find a, a director that they felt would do the material justice. Like they talked to the guy who they ended up eventually getting. They started talking to over a year before he was actually hired. Uh, and that guy was a director named Adam Shankman. Now, Shankman's background is is pretty interesting. I, I, I kind of took a dive into his history as a director because I knew that he came from stage first, but I didn't know exactly how his journey from stage to to hairspray went. And it was pretty interesting to me, honestly. So he, he worked, uh, his background in show business began in the world of dance. He was actually trained at Juilliard. And then after college, he worked on several music videos, first as a dancer, then as a choreographer, working for acts like Tony, 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 Whitney Houston, and Aaron Neville, uh, before moving into television, where he became the go-to choreographer on Friends and The Ellen DeGeneres Show. He also served as a choreographer and dance consultant on dozens of movies, including Adam's Family Values, Catch Me If You Can. Also starring Christopher Walken. Catch me Not Boogie Nights. Not Boogie Nights. <laughs> although, that, although that would have been pretty great. <laughs> Walken, Walken as Dirk Diggler would have been yeah. classic, honestly. <laughs> I'm a star. <laughs> a bright shining star oh god i don't know a whole, know a whole remake of that movie with that now no don't say that don't don't treat me that way <laughs> well in 1998 shankman wrote and directed a short film that screened at the Sundance Film Festival which led to him landing his first feature directing job on the 2001 Jennifer Lopez Matthew McConaughey romantic comedy the Wedding Planner. Uh, not what you would think a choreographer would go to because it is not a musical. Uh, I don't remember if there are any dance sequences in it. Maybe there are, but I don't know. Uh, he basically got that job, though, because his sister is a producer, a film producer. And after The Wedding Planner, him and his sister actually started their own production company. So I think she's actually a producer on all or at least most of his films going forward. I think it's called Offspring Productions is what they call their production company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's how he got involved with that film. And that film was a big success. And Shankman went on to direct several other stu- you know, big studio films, like kind of movies made for the masses is kind of what he's doing. He, he did A Walk to Remember. He did Cheaper by the Dozen 2, Bringing Down the House, and The Pacifier, starring, of course, Vin Diesel, who we will bring up on Cinema Shock any chance we get. Yeah. Hell yes, we will. <laughs> and that movie's a lot of fun. So uh, I've never seen it. And it's also it's, good. All, it's also all about family. <laughs> it's also very obviously originally intended for Jackie Chan. And once you right. know that and you watch it, you can't unsee that. But Vin <laughs> but does a fine job. Yeah. As he always does. Of course. But Hairspray was the first film that Shankman directed where he, he was really able to get back to those stage roots. Because when New Line hired him, when they finally hired him to direct the film, they also agreed to allow him to serve as the film's choreographer as well. So he, he's not just directing, but he's actually choreographing all of the dance numbers, all of the musical numbers and everything, which is normally the job of two different people. Mm-hmm. But he's got the background for it. So he did the right thing. When he was told he, he'd gotten the job, he paid reverence as all of these people seem to. So props to them. Uh, one of the first things that Shakeman did was he reached out to John Waters and Shakeman happened to be in Baltimore at the time. He was producing Step Up and Waters agreed to meet him for lunch the next day. At lunch, Waters gave Shakeman the same advice he'd given the producers of the Broadway show. He said, quote, I am now saying to you, you have to do your own thing. The story is only good when it's told that way. Yeah, which is a good advice, I think. I mean, you don't, you don't want to just do hairspray like the John Waters. If you're, if you're just doing the same exact thing again, then what's the point? Kind of, you know, 
Mm. Right. So, you know, that's pretty good advice because it obviously had worked for the Broadway show. But after their meeting, Waters took Shankman on a tour of the area of Baltimore where most of the original film had been shot. So he wanted him to see like the real Baltimore because he wanted him to be able to imbue that into the film. Well, when Leslie Dixon was hired to write that screenplay, one of her main goals was to tone down the campiness that was inherent to the stage version. Uh, However, the script itself is still primarily based on the musical rather than the 1988 film. Like that's what she was going by was the musical itself. So several changes that had been made for the stage adaptation uh, remain in the film version. Some of those changes include dropping several characters, including Arvin Hodgepile, who was the racist station manager that Divine played in the film, you know, when Divine played the the male role in the film. Uh, They also took out Velma's husband, Franklin, Sonny Bono's character. Uh, Corny's assistant, Tammy, which was a role originated by Mink Stoll. Although there is a member of the Corny Collins committee that's named Tammy, I think in kind of a reference to that, which I thought was fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they, of course, they removed the beatniks played by Rick Ocasek and Pia Zadora. Another thing they also removed in this movie was the Tilted Acres amusement park and the subsequent race riot that happened. All that got taken out of the story and made Velma Vaughn Tussle the station manager at the TV studio. Yeah, I think they, they replaced the race riot with kind of a peaceful protest, you know, kind of, kind of thing instead. So you you get the same gist without, obviously you can't talk about that. I mean, you can't put it, you can't, it's hard to do an amusement park riot on stage, I guess. (laughs) You can make a race riot anywhere. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, but, but to keep it on the stage is difficult without it spilling out into the aisles. (laughs) Well, in both the original film and the stage version, Tracy is arrested and taken to jail after joining the protest uh, at the TV studio. But this subplot was actually removed from the script for the 2007 film. Uh, Dixon also restructured some parts of the stage musicals book to allow some of the songs to blend more naturally into the plot. For example, in her screenplay, Dixon created a, a new subplot that doesn't exist in the original film or in the stage show where Velma tries to break up Edna and Wilbur's marriage in, a, in a, an attempt to kind of keep Tracy off of the Corny Collins show. So when she did that, she moved the placement of the song You're Timeless to Me uh, to be after this scene where it kind of acts as a an apology from Wilbur to Edna rather than the tongue-in-cheek declaration of love it had been in the stage show. And I mean, honestly, like narratively, that's pretty brilliant. Uh, it is. I mean, it, it works. Being in- able to repurpose it that mm-hmm. way. I mean, in light of John Waters' advice to them before they started, yeah, it, it, it seems like they really, really put that thought in, and you know, it flows a little bit better. It's a, it's yeah. a better. It gives the the movie a better flow, even than the stage show has, I think. Yeah, and with the with the chemistry of Travolta and Walken, like it works really, really well. It's a great. Scene. Oh yeah. It really, it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Actually, yeah. Hairspray was greenlit with a budget of seventy five million dollars. Now that is if you're keeping count that is more than 30 times the cost of water's original film uh, one of the first orders of business on this was to find an actress to play tracy turnblad so after auditioning over 1100 actresses the role went to nikki blonsky a high school student from great neck new york who had absolutely no previous professional experience in acting or singing what's wild with nikki blonsky is for me is that just how confident she seems and that's like legit she says she thinks she got it from her parents uh just how confident she is i was watching the commentary on the blu-ray and they were kind of talking about that that's what stood out to them just that how comfortable she seemed in her own body and just willing to do whatever and learn the dances and just 
being just out there. I think the the director was saying that like they had a running joke on the movie set. They were like, was this girl just bored on a soundstage? What is she doing? <laughs> and uh, She says her grandma just gave her like the best advice when she was a little girl and she was a little overweight. She said, people who make fun of you are insecure about themselves. So you can't care what other people think. And she said that she also took that a step further. She always realized that I don't care what they think. And seems to make them feel good if they make fun of me so whatever i'm fine (laughs) (laughs) guess that's one way of looking at it i I think when adam shankman called her and told her she had gotten the part she was like working at a cold stone creamery (laughs) yeah i mean just a high school job you know and then she gets called and says hey you got the lead in the major studio film (laughs) which is (laughs) which is insane so she got she got that job through a a rigorous audition process through a similar audition process relative unknowns elijah kelly and taylor parks were cast in the roles of seaweed and little inez stubbs Uh, by the way so yeah a little side note about taylor parks because i looked into her a little bit because i was curious like what else she had done after this because she's obviously very young in this and now she is primarily she's a singer but more known as a songwriter actually and she she's co-written some pretty big songs like she did uh co-wrote thank you next by ariana grande which is, I mean, huge. One of Ariana Grande's biggest singles. Yeah. Uh, so she's, you know, I don't know that she's doing a lot of acting these days, but she has transitioned into a music career full time. It seems good for her. Like what are the, I know on uh, the the Negro Day stuff. Like I forget what what are the what are the dancers was like the wife of the star of like Step Up or something. But the there was like what are the Pussycat Dolls. Is really dancers and stuff. Really? Yeah. Oh wow, That's crazy. Yeah. Well, for the role of Tracy's mother, Edna. The producers wanted to keep the tradition alive of casting a male actor in that role. And executives at New Line, uh, they expected the part to be filled by an actor known for playing in comedies. You know, So they started throwing a w- around names like Robin Williams, who we already made a joke about him being in drag in a movie. He would have honestly been great in the role. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they threw around names like Robin Williams, Steve Martin, Tom Hanks, like guys known for doing comedy. But Craig Zayden and Neil Maron, they fought hard to get John Travolta in the role, seeing as how he had starred in one of the, the most successful movie musicals of all time, Grease. Never heard of it. <laughs> Actually, I think it was the most successful musical of all time until Hairspray came along. Or oh, maybe yeah. it was, yeah, I think it was. I think until Hairspray came along, it was like the highest grossing movie musical of all time at this point. Wow. Can I also establish that I don't think it's okay to say Negro uh, now, but uh, that was the name <laughs> of the day. And the movie. And then we, yeah, we know. They make a joke but, but about that it. Was- they- they even make a joke about it in the movie that they don't make in the original in the original John Waters movie. They make a joke about it in this one where one of the kids at, at uh, Motormouth Maybell's record shop says, yeah, we could do without the nomenclature or, or something along those lines. The director said that was a, an issue that they discussed. Like some of the producers were like, are we like making it OK to say that again by doing this or not? No, I mean, like it's, if you're concerned about it, if you're being true to this being set in 1962, it's it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, another thing I saw, like, when this was released, there were, like, all these articles, like, talking about this. It's like the, the last time you'd see John Travolta do anything like this was Grease. And he, that's the last time he sang and danced and all this stuff. But, you know, I know Saturday Night Fever had already uh, happened, but don't forget Staying Alive. He's in Staying Alive. I think he would 80s. like to forget Staying Alive, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I watched them not too long ago, so I was thinking of that. And I was like, brother was dancing in that. Yeah. And, Directed uh, by Sylvester Stallone. Oddly yeah. enough. 
<laughs> you know, another thing when I was thinking about this that I stumbled across because I wanted to double check the timeline was that the performance that John Travolta does in Staying Alive, the show he's in, is called Satan's Alley, by the way. And the reason that that stood out to me because that is also the name of the gay priest movie that Robert Downey Jr. and Tobey Maguire are in yeah. in Tropic Thunder. <laughs> and I always wonder, and I wonder if they do that. I, I bet it's a reference of uh, some weird reference that Ben Stiller was making. That's all I can guess. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Wow. For Edna's husband, Wilbur, the role, of course, the great Jerry Stiller played in John Waters' films. Jerry! Uh, the, the production cast Christopher Walken, after Travolta actually asked that Walken be considered for the role. Other actors who had been considered before that uh, included Billy Crystal and Jim Broadbent, both of whom would have been pretty great in that. Uh, Jerry Stiller, by the way, if you're paying attention, he does appear in a small, it's not quite a cameo. It's a little bit bigger than a cameo, but a small role here where he plays Mr. Pinky, the owner of Mr. Pinky's Hefty Hideaway. Nikki says she was, uh, this Nikki Blodsky, she said she was nervous to work so closely with so many great actors, especially though, up close with John Travolta for one. But she says she was terrified of working with Christopher Walken. I mean, who wouldn't be? (laughs) Um, Anyway, but she also thought it was peak, a peak moment for her to have uh, her face on his bow tie. Uh, Yeah. You know, know you've made it when Christopher Walken's wearing you on his suspenders and stuff. I have definitely decided that when I am an old man, I'm going to dress like Christopher Walken dresses in this movie. That's my my old man goals. What's I just just wish my old dad loved me enough to wear me on his. What's the what's the age cutoff for that, Justin? When, when are you going to start? 45, 45. 45? Yeah, okay. so not very. It won't be long. <laughs> I was going to say that is right around the corner, dude. <laughs> uh, so Travolta also had a hand in casting for Velma Von Tussle. Uh, you know, the villain of the film uh, that Debbie Harry, of course, played in the original. And he suggested Michelle Pfeiffer, which makes for a fun Grease, Grease 2 connection, I think. You know, I'm sure a lot of people got a kick out of that. Velber's daughter, Amber, is played by Brittany Snow, who we, we she's kind of a scream queen these days, Brittany Snow is. Adam Shakeman had actually worked with her on The Pacifier, so that's how she got involved. Uh, Hayden Panettiere had actually been in consideration for that role, but she ended up passing because she was about to begin work on the TV show Heroes. Uh, you know, Jamal Sibbs was one of the choreographers on this movie. And uh, he's the guy who choreographed like Run and Tell That. He was, like, it was big on the movie, but anyway. Uh, Jamal um, Sims is a regular on Drew, RuPaul's Drag Race. So we are very very aware of who Jamal Sims is in the Bishop. Oh, yeah, and he goes on to be a d- <laughs> director too. I think he, but but uh, the reason, actually I was going to say is he, he's a director too now. And I think he did Grease, The Rise of the Peak Ladies. So all, oh, Greece, really? all of Grease is referenced here. That's <laughs> fun. That's a fun. That's a fun little uh, connection there. Yeah, I assume that Travolta recommended uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Christopher Walken because he's a fan of Batman Returns. Uh, that's so probably what it is. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> my <laughs> best guess. Uh, <laughs> that's probably also, now, now, not that also a great funny. musical comedy. Yeah. <laughs> it's got dance numbers uh, in it. That's true. Now, if you watch the commentary, Shakeman says that Michelle Pfeiffer was the first person that he wanted. So maybe he meant like after Travolta suggested it. Well, Uh, Travolta claims that he, I read a New York Times profile of John Travolta that came out in conjunction with this movie. And during the course of that interview, he claims that he suggested Michelle Pfeiffer to be cast in the role. So, you know, that's 
his side of the story. Yeah, Shaman says uh, in the commentary that like he he just has a story about it, basically saying that Sh- Pfeiffer was the first person I wanted. I always wanted to work with her, and I honestly didn't even think she'd be interested in this. But this was the chance for him to shoot a shot, and uh, yeah. so he set up a dinner with her. And it sounds like uh, on the day it happened, uh, he almost missed his chance because he said when she walked in and started talking to him, he just like couldn't speak anymore. <laughs> like, he was so starstruck by her. I mean, I would be. Uh, I, I would do the same thing in the presence of michelle pfeiffer (laughs) right and you might think at this point in her career she's pretty chill but like by all accounts like she was like almost killing the dancers because she wanted to rehearse so much she was always out there worrying about uh there was an article in film journal international that like she uh, the big blonde and beautiful uh song uh was added in at her suggestion a suggestion uh to replace a scene that was scripted in there she said that song's in the original broadway musical that's what they said in there i don't know maybe they were gonna cut it and added it back in or something well no they were going they were going to cut miss baltimore crabs which is the song Mm -hmm. that she sings which is like her big number the the guys who wrote the music for the for the broadway show and the and the musical they had written a few that that was a song that apparently when it was on broadway was like one of the least popular songs miss baltimore crabs because it's it's a little different stylistically you know, than some of the other songs in it. So when they started working on the movie, they wrote several other songs to replace it with to have Michelle Pfeiffer do. And she was like, yeah, but I want I want to do Miss Baltimore Crabs. Like, that's what I signed on for because I like that song. That's what they told them. Uh, yeah, yeah so maybe it, maybe maybe they miss, mess up the song because, yes, it's, she wanted a chance to sing and, and do her thing in there. I, I also saw, yeah, like, in big a couple of places. Beautiful is Motormouth Maybell's song, so she's not even involved in that scene. Yeah, okay. So either I wrote that down wrong or, <laughs> they, or they, they wrote it down wrong. <laughs> I think I just copied it over from them. So yeah. Film Journal International, they're also, though, at a couple of places, I saw this rumor that uh, it wasn't until halfway through that she realized that her character is actually racist. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's true. Her, her character <laughs> saying we want to steer them in the white direction did not like <laughs> tip her off a little bit. She thought that was a typo. <laughs> uh, I mean, she, she doesn't like, do a lot of musicals is the thing. So like getting her was kind of a big deal. She very rarely does musicals. She's only done a couple since Grease 2, but she has a phenomenal voice. Like she crushes uh, that, yeah. that, especially that song, Miss, Mal- Miss Baltimore Crab. Uh, like she really like kills it because she has to hit some notes at the end of that song that are very impressive. Like, and she does yeah. a great job, I think. Uh, speaking of impressive vocalists, uh, they wanted Aretha Franklin originally for the role of Motormouth Maybell Stubbs, which would have been great, honestly. But the part would ultimately go to Queen Latifah, who had worked with Shankman on bringing, in, bringing down the house uh, and had also worked with Zayden and Miron, as Todd mentioned earlier, on the film version of Chicago. And she also is absolutely incredible in the role, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they brought her in and she, uh, there was one story about uh, the song You Can't Stop the Beat. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cast would like call that song "You Can't Stop to Breathe." Yeah, and, there's uh, a lot of words in like, that song. Fast paced. Yeah, and they were like talking to her about it. They were like, "Are you having trouble getting all the words in?" Blah blah. blah. And she was like, "Do you know what I did for a living?" Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> if anyone's gonna nail it, it's her. <laughs> so for the role of Link Larkin, Shankman cast Zac Efron. He actually didn't want to cast Zac Efron at first uh, because he thought he was too teeny bopper, and his sister, the producer talked him into uh, getting Efron on there because she was like 
we've got a built-in audience. All these kids who watched High School Musical will come watch this because Zac Efron's in it. He's like a teeny, he is a teeny bopper, but that's actually a plus for the film, for the box office at least. Uh, and he's great in it anyway, so he's he's awesome. Amanda Bynes is great in this. She plays uh, Penny Pingleton, uh, which is a, a perfect role for her because Amanda Bynes is kind of weird and Penny Pingleton's kind of weird. Uh, mm-hmm. And then veteran character acting, actor, Allison Janey plays Penny's mother, Prudy, and Allison Janey is just wonderful in this role, I think. Uh, James Marsden was cast as Corny Collins, beating out former New Kids on the Block member Joey McIntyre and Marsden's X-Men co-star Hugh Jackman for the role. Get him. Cyclops gets his revenge. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like, I mean, Hugh Jackman's a great song and dance guy, you know? Yeah. I mean, we've all seen The Greatest Showman. Like, he's, he's really good. But James Marsden fucking is Corny Collins in this. Yeah. He is... Uh, phenomenal in the role like when we were watching this the other day me and bunny but and me and bunny watch this movie quite often uh, and listen to the soundtrack quite often but she commented when we were watching the other night she's like nobody else could be corny collins like he is like it's like the role was written for him he's so good in that role like he is perfectly corny as as (laughs) as he should be he's doing all the like like winks and points and like all the stuff, you know, like the really goofy rat pack stuff, you know, Yeah. Uh, yeah. that it is just perfect for that character. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like every time he's on the screen, I think like uh shape is this stuff. I like, uh, God, Jimmy's so good. I want to kick him right in the face. <laughs> uh, there's a, a career breakdown he does with Vanity Fair on YouTube. And he talks about when he was up for hairspray, Ashton Kutcher and Jake Gyllenhaal were up for it he said that he told his agent if they're not interested or not available i'll just wait in the wings like i do he said that that was exactly how he'd acted when he had gotten cyclops uh because it was like jim caviezel was going to be cyclops originally ahead of him or something is what they said anyway he got a meeting for hairspray uh with the producers craig zeta and neil Maraud and adam shakeman and he said it was at this little bar off broadway one afternoon and they were just going to talk about the role. But when they were in the bar, they happened to be sitting there. And Julia Roberts came up to them and tapped James Marston on the shoulder and said, I'm sorry to interrupt you guys, but I loved you in the notebook. You're amazing. <laughs> and I said, gave him an awkward hug. And he turned back to the table and said, holy shit, I bet that got me the job. And he said, he sat down and they were like, well, holy shit, that got you the job. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. i love that what a great story also if, if i if julia roberts tapped me on the shoulder in a restaurant which let's be honest would never happen um i would literally pass away right then and there <laughs> like <laughs> deceased uh good, yeah had a good life <laughs> <laughs> well i guess that brings us to todd's favorite segment uh at least <laughs> hopefully you're gonna get uh some bites on this one you finally got a one name last time right so yeah. we had one one name, one Star Trek alum on this entire seven part series so far. Are you going to add any more to the list this week? Well, folks, I am happy to report that I am about to double those numbers. <laughs> we got <laughs> we got one more. <laughs> yeah, this week, uh, Mr. Paul Dooley, who plays uh, Mr. Spritzer, I think he's the station owner. Or the uh, he, or is he the 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 guy who is in charge? He's the guy that is, fires the, Velma at the end. Yeah, he's the the guy who's in charge of the hairspray company or like the, the I don't know. Oh, he's the is he the, like, yeah. the executive like, producer or like he, the sponsor? Yeah, he's the sponsor. He works for the hairspray company who uh, sponsors okay. the show. Yeah, uh, yeah, he uh, he did four episodes of Deep Space Nine. 
as uh, Enabran Tane back in is the that, day. Is that a human character or is that like a... That is not a human character. That doesn't no. sound human. <laughs> yeah yeah paul paul dooley is um he's a, he's one of those character actors you see a lot he's in a, he's in a lot of like christopher guest movies and things like that uh dude saw him pop up recently did we well we talked about it very briefly if you remember he was the guy that was replaced by jim brewer at the end of little shop of horrors because he had filmed the ending not jim brewer and, uh not jim brewer <laughs> 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 not jim brewer <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna play up Andre twos everywhere. That <laughs> 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 plant's just freaking me out, man. <laughs> I think you mean Jim Jim Belushi, I believe, is who you're referring to, which <laughs> <That> is uh... <laughs> oh, God. I'm sorry, my references were more to his more recent stand-up. I don't know if you guys have seen Jim Where Bullard he just makes a bunch of weird noises, yeah. That's his idea joke. Landed. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Jim Belushi, at the end of Little Shop of Horrors, we talked about how they had to replace the ending. There's a director's cut of Little Shop of Horrors where you can see Paul Dooley was the guy that was uh, originally in that part. But he was unavailable to reshoot it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because if you watch the the director's cut of it, he's in he's in it. He meets with him on the roof or whatever. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Paul Dooley was also for another weird cinema shot connection. He was also the creator of the Electric Company. Uh, he was one of the he, he the show the the Electric Company, which of yeah, course hey. we talked about a good bit during uh, one of our Spider Man episodes. Oh, uh, and that's everybody in Star Trek. Oh, yeah. Again, let Todd have his moment. <laughs> just, I can't believe there was only one in this. Uh, that was kind of surprising to me. But yep, not, not a lot of song and dance numbers in Star Trek, although there are some. And and, and they're becoming more frequent uh, yeah. every day. Yeah. There should just be a whole Star Trek musical television show. I would watch it. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I'm I'm in I'm in for it and I'm and I'm down to see all the Star Trek bros heads explode because yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they deserve it. So <laughs> once casting was complete, the whole cast gathered together to do a read through, which is, you know, that's pretty standard on a movie. You get all the cast together, cast and crew, director, everybody gets together and does a read through of the script. They sit at tables in kind of a semicircle usually and we all read through the script for the first time together, right? So that's very standard, except for, in, in this case, the read-through included musical numbers. So anytime that they would get to a musical number in the script, the person who had that number would get up with a microphone and they would sing the song. So you've seen the movie. What's the very first thing in the movie is a song. It's yeah. Nikki Blonsky singing <laughs> Good Morning Baltimore. So when they're doing this read-through, Nikki Blonsky, who again, has no experience making movies or performing in front of audiences professionally in any way. They start the read-through, and the first thing they have to do is she has to get up, and she has to get a microphone, and she has to sing this song in front of the likes of John Travolta, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Walken, and Queen Latifah, all of whom she's just met. <laughs> like, And she has to be the first one to sing in front of everyone. Like that, That takes a special kind of person to be able to pull that off. Oh yeah. It goes back to what I was saying before about that natural confidence. Like, can you imagine how intimidating that is? Just and being in a corner of that room and not having to say a word would be intimidating to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, you're right. I mean, it was just like just to even have to speak, let alone sing a, a number in front of all these people. Like she talks yeah. about being scared of Christopher Walken and 
she even in the commentary at one point talks about she was like i never got a chance to tell queen latifah like i I was too nervous to ever tell her but like i grew up like idolizing her and all that stuff so it's like wow if that's true then this is a weird spot for you buddy right (laughs) (laughs) filming for hairspray took place in toronto in the fall and winter of 2006 so while the film, you know, like John Waters' original movie and the musical adaptation, is set in Baltimore, Toronto was chosen as the filming location because the city was better equipped with the sound stages necessary to film a musical. So you got to film up. I mean, this is pretty much all on sound stages because with a musical and the choreography and all that, like it's it's very hard to film on location. In fact, the opening shots of the film, which is that descent from the clouds, you know, the, the camera starts up in the clouds and comes down, uh, which is a a shot that references both West Side Story and The Sound of Music. Uh, and then it kind of zooms down on a newspaper guy throwing a newspaper onto a stoop. That shot, that establishing shot of Baltimore is actually the only time that the actual city of Baltimore appears in the film. Everything else was shot in Canada. Yeah, that's so weird. They also shot at Hamilton as well, which is just like an hour away from Toronto, I think. But I bring it up because uh, apparently there's these scenes where like, well, especially one that I'm thinking of right off the bat is like Trudy first meets uh zach efron and they do that i can hear the bell song and that's pretty interesting because shakeman had uh like there's a lot of interesting ideas going on and so much with her like following her walking through a hallway and doing all this different stuff Mm -hmm. it's more dynamic than if you go like see the live play of it right but they shot that in different locations so it's not like one steady shot how it feels you know they're obviously very good at that but they shot it in actually two different places had her go into different spots like i think the the scene of her coming out of the bathroom stall with the bridal stuff on was like the last shot of the movie that they actually filmed but he he did all that and had all this stuff going on it's a good thing he did because apparently the producers when they saw it they were like this is one of the songs we were going to cut out of this movie but now you've made it interesting and so we can't so we have to <laughs> so uh i'll give him that one of my favorite things about what shakeman does in this movie and you can tell he's like a choreography guy or knows choreography because mm-hmm. all the time like elements are happening behind everything else you got your foreground story and then there's other stuff happening constantly mm-hmm. which is like that's a musical thing but like there's actually like more complex stuff happening the only thing i can think of right now is like like in the beginning when cordy collins knocks up that girl brenda who's the one that uh trudy's gonna replace like, tracy you went true you said trudy <laughs> oh sorry tracy replace like you know because there's seat like michelle pfeiffer goes up to the girl brenda and it's like this is all background like there's other stuff happening up front but she like talks to her is talking about her gut like she's getting pudgy you can see her you can see you can see her putting her hands like on her belly yeah 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 and then (laughs) after that scene there's another scene you can see her looking sad and another scene in the background if you watch her she's like talking to james marsden and they're arguing back and forth and then a little bit later you finally get the payoff for that that like he's like well she's got to go away for like nine months and blah 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 yeah blah. She, <laughs> it like tells us that you, basically Cordy Collins knocked up this girl this I mean I don't think show. it's implied that it was Cordy Collins that did it, it I feel it, like it was. it's implied that she has I mean it is pretty explicitly stated that she is pregnant but I don't think mm. there's anything that says that Cordy Collins did it where are you getting that from because they're having the discussion and because the director said it on the commentary. Oh, well, I don't think there's anything in the film that supports that. To be honest. I don't think there's anything in the film to support that 
he was the one who did that, but yeah, maybe that's what they were thinking when they were filming it. <laughs> uh, I, you can just tell he he cares a lot about this background stuff, like the, the all of the choreography works. Like uh, I think he said they saw upwards to like three thousand people for like wow. uh, just roles in the background dance. He said he was like, oh, I didn't see three thousand. I saw like two, but like I sent <laughs> like guys out into the world to like yeah. look at people and then like Nikki Blonsky's like well they must be so honored that they were chosen he's like they'll be honored when they get their residuals <laughs> <laughs> well one of my favorite things about the film is John Travolta's portrayal of Edna uh, I love Edna I love John Travolta in the role I love how different it is from every other version of this character so as we know Divine who played Edna in the original in the original film was naturally big boned right mm-hmm. Travolta is not Travolta is a much thinner than than divine was or or harvey firestein so travolta had to be outfitted with a a fat suit and prosthetics in order to be transformed into the character and that prosthetic suit was created by tony gardner who's a makeup and special effects designer who's worked on everything from the jackass movies to cinema shock favorites the return of the living dead where he created the half corpse puppet you know with a very memorable scene in that film and of course sam raimi's dark man and army of darkness so he is a cinema shock guy this tony garter but he also does musicals or at least in this one case he did a musical so he created this this fat suit that travolta wears throughout the film and gardner and travolta actually collaborated pretty closely on edna's look with travolta wanting her look to be what he called a curvy girl who grew up to be a mom now the travolta's <laughs> travolta's main want was he said he, he like thought edna's outfit should be like tighter on the body to show the figure like he saw her as a woman who was basically Sophia Loren back in the day, is how Shakeman said he yeah. described her. Mm-hmm. Well, she's got, like an, only- she's got that like hourglass figure. Uh, she still has that. She still has a waist and everything. And so he wanted her to have that voluptuous like hourglass figure. She's just gotten a little bit bigger than she had probably hoped to. Shakeman says the main thing he just cared about was that we need to see John Travolta's big, beautiful blue eyes, and we need that Travolta <laughs> chin. On yeah, <laughs> yeah. Except you know, the majority of everything else on that chin is prosthetic. Oh um, yeah, there's they, rubber there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, which they did intentionally, and they it actually covers up like Travolta's beard, like where his beard would grow, so that like halfway through filming a 12 hour day, he doesn't have stubble growing through, you know, the makeup. So right, they, right. They, I mean that that, that whole that suit is like a full body suit, like it goes down to the feet, like the feet are prosthetic, like. John Travolta was fully encased in that thing. Oof. John Travolta's like a nice sized guy anyway. I think he's like six something. He's uh, pretty tall. Yeah. So that, that leads us into a few fun facts I just saw that I picked up randomly and I don't know where else they go, which is that uh, in the scene with the march where Tracy is walking at the head of the line there and Edna runs up behind her to like see what's going on. Apparently John Travolta couldn't see what was happening there. And accidentally, the first time, just plowed right over and knocked her off the curb. Just linebackered her. Just took her out. I just thought that was interesting. (laughs) They were like, like, he's very strong. Like, even when he bent over to help me, he just, like, one-armed me, like, just picked me up. And was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they showed the scene where Edna and Tracy, like, go to the 
they're they're together and they're walking out of the street and they look into the bar and there's the pregnant women smoking and drinking. Yeah, and yeah, they yeah. Did point out in the commentary, uh, Shapman said that is John Waters' favorite scene. He told me. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Other than his own scene, maybe where he plays the flasher, which I don't think we've mentioned, but he does play the oh, flasher yeah, during uh, Good Morning Baltimore. I thought it was uh, interesting. They they mentioned they get their hair done and then Tracy gets the uh, Edna gets the hair like Tracy, but then Tracy gets the beehive hairdo with the pin in it mm-hmm. they said they told that directly from barbara streisand in the movie funny girl mm. uh, that's her hairstyle there but they oh. said that like when the movie was coming out uh photos released of it and what one, one of those photos was released and they said they got like so much shit for that photo because people were like how dare you change her hair and give her like a beehive hairdo <laughs> and all wow. this <laughs> they were like people were like for some reason very pissed about this <laughs> <laughs> The other fun fact I want to talk about is not something I saw anywhere, but it's just something that stood out in my mind both times that I saw this movie recently. And I just, nobody acknowledges it, but I swear to God, it is a thing. But the scene where they sing the song where uh, Tracy and uh, uh, What's-Her-Face with the Lollipops break out. Penny. And she she gets in the car with the crew that she should not be with. I want to say, like, the black people, but this seems like a weird thing to say. But she I mean, that's who, that's who she's in the car with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She gets in the car with the blacks. <laughs> she's, I mean, <laughs> but Zach Efron is in a different room and he is singing. And during one part of the song, besides where he's like lusting over the uh, picture of Tracy that he keeps under his pillow, obviously spanking mm-hmm. it too. He pulls out a candy bar. Yeah. The baby Ruth, uh, the baby Ruth. He's in, mm-hmm. he's in, he's in her room. Yeah. That's her she, room. She goes, yeah, he goes to her. Oh, is that, Oh, he shows up at her family's apartment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. All right, I was was messing up. Anyway, he he gets the baby Ruth, and he lays back on the bed, and he's like singing into it. He's singing into it. I guess it's a microphone. It's open. The chocolate bar sticking out, and he shoves it in his mouth. And the very fucking next scene of that movie is she's in the car. Friend, lollipop friend. I keep forgetting her name. Penny. 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 Penny is in the car, head covered by a blanket in the crotch of the black guy that she's dating. See, uh, <laughs> so I'm like, chocolate bar, she's in the black guy's crotch. I'm Gary, you're, you're reading way too what, much into that, what, I believe. Where, where's this going, Gary? I need you to explain in more detail. <laughs> she blew She blew that young man that night. <laughs> she loves lollipops. Good morning, balls. Zach Efron shoves a chocolate bar into his mouth right as it goes to that scene. I think you're probably Fuck reading you. into that. This, this is a psychological thing uh, with you, Gary. This is a subconscious thing with you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I and I don't mean like fuck you because it happened. I mean fuck you for pretending it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's, it's fine. I'm just saying she she blew him. Awesome. <laughs> I'm trying to get across. Anyway, point taken. <laughs> <laughs> Hairspray opened on July 20th, 2007. It brought in $27.5 million its opening weekend, which made it the biggest opening ever for a movie based on a Broadway musical, which was a record that was broken the following year when Mamma Mia came out. Uh, But it opened at number three at the box office, just behind Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which is not a surprise. And uh, surprisingly, number two uh, was I pro- now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, which is a movie that I forgot existed until doing the research for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't deny the power of ABBA and uh, and 
early and aughts. Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler and Kevin <laughs> James. I would never doubt the power of ABBA. Mamma Mia is a very fun movie. <laughs> oh, I, but that I was the next that. year. That was that was not they were not in competition at this point. But all in all, Hairspray brought in just over $200 million at the worldwide box office and was well-received by both audiences and critics alike. Although, if we have learned anything over the years of doing this podcast, it is that you can't please everyone, especially people on the internet. I don't know why you say that. It's like people on the internet are perfectly accepting of all races, creeds, uh, sexualities uh everything men uh and drag never bother anybody right <laughs> it's uh okay anyway yeah we uh, went online and found out some people need a nap <laughs> all right uh so there's a lot of variations uh there's uh joe here who gave it a half star uh, said it's uh white people's west side story that's what he said <laughs> what uh, is, then what is west side story if not also white <laughs> people's west side story <laughs> the neil 22 calls it in their title racist crap that's what he says it's gonna wow. be interesting what a dreadful piece of racist crap this movie is. Take away all the repetitive and thoroughly boring music and the frantic dancing and you have racist screed. White people are, unless they are grossly fat and or in Barney drag, ugly racists of the worst kind. But black people are just the absolute best folk ever with not a mean bone in their bodies. Remember that the next time you see a thin blonde woman that she really has a KKK hood and a bunch of nooses in her Fendi bag. And bro, she's looking to lynch you and put you down. The message must not and should not be accepted as okay just because it's all overlaid with a hyper musical score. Hairspray, cuter, entertaining. It's cultural pollution and the expression of the most thoroughly loathsome values. Was this supposed to be a comedy? I thought comedies were supposed to produce some laughs. Silly me. John Waters' talent is akin to that of Ed Woods, except Ed Woods was recognized as unadulterated crap by everybody, including himself. That guy thinks it's racist against white people? He does. Wow. <laughs> and by the way, he's not the only one. I tried to limit a lot of these that just that, deal in issues where I'm like, you don't even deserve the attention. That is a but... fundamental misreading of the entire film. Also, like, there are racist white people. There are bad white people in the movie. But there's also good white people. I mean, Wilbur and Edna and, you know, like there's a lot of great people in the like you're you're not paying attention to the movie if that's what you think. Also, that person said that the the music was like monotonous or something like that. That completely invalidates everything you're going to say after that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Boring music is what he said. Here's Steven. By the way, all of these just from the names alone, it sounds like uh, some white dudes. Oh yeah, <laughs> they, might be, they might have their own thing going on. Uh, this movie sucked from the opening lines to the moment I walked out. That's his title. What is wrong with you people? This was the absolute worst movie in the history of film. Yeah! <laughs> oh, wow. <Yeah>. All right. <laughs> Surprisingly, we haven't gotten that many of those on the last couple of uh, John Waters episodes. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> I have never walked out in the middle of a movie in my life, but this movie sucked. Every song in this movie, and there are way too many of them, had the same basic tune. And what a moronic plotline. 
Make fun of blacks and their dancing and fat people. Wow, what a movie plot. And what is the purpose of taking great actors like John Travolta for Christopher Walken and Michelle Pfeiffer and wasting their time making a movie like this? Every one of their parts could have been done by any Jake leg. I don't even know what that means. So that's racist. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't that. know. <laughs> Every, any Jake leg, and it wouldn't have been, and it wouldn't have made the movie any worse or better. What a total waste of talent. Absolute stupidity. None of the lines brought even a smile to my face, let alone a chuckle or laugh. I couldn't help but wonder what the other people in the audience were thinking when they laughed. Another fundamental misreading of the film. And also, it sounds like they left halfway through the movie, so your opinion doesn't count anyway. And to complain that there are too, there is too much music. In a musical. <laughs> in a musical. <laughs> That's your point. It seems like an odd. It seems like an odd complaint. Is all These people seem like, yeah, they're it sells. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, half star though from Jalen with a Y. That's their actual name. Says, if I have to hear Good Morning Baltimore one more goddamn time, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> it's an earworm. It's a good song. Evan gave it a half star and said, really didn't like the white savior bullshit that this entire movie is. Well, I mean, that's valid, uh, honestly. But <laughs> <laughs> Steve NY30, uh, so you already know where this is going, I think. Uh, just Another like Steve. <laughs> Another Steve. Steve. Hey, you know what? Thank you, Steve, because most assholes in film are named Todd. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Major disappointment. I enjoyed the original Hairspray in 88. Thought the stage version was forgettable, but this new one, I actually had a hard time sitting through it. First off, the camera work is wooden. Music numbers suffer as a result. Everything just fell so flat and uninspired. And then John Travolta, wrong, wrong, wrong. His singing voice was terrible, and his Edna could barely move her face. She wasn't a woman. She was a plasticine sack that may have well been a mannequin. I just kept wondering, why isn't there a real drag queen playing the role, or even a campy guy, or even a talented and heavy real woman playing Edna? How about Bette Midler? Ooh, Bette. Uh, and the songs themselves. Just noisy, unclever, not something I'll ever want to buy or sing along to. I remember hearing all sorts of hype about this movie when it came out, that it had really hit it out of the park. I just want to know how much money the producer spent to generate phony buzz. Everybody I talked to thought this was terrible. Michelle Pfeiffer can't sing either. Oh, incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were, I remember, a lot of... Uh, I don't know a lot of, but there were complaints about John Travolta's casting in this because he's not like a drag queen and he's not gay, which it's like the character is not a drag queen. The character is a woman and the character is also not gay, uh, you know? So yeah. I don't understand that argument. It's just a man portraying a character. It's just, they're just keeping with the tradition of casting a man in that role, but the, I mean, the character's sexuality does not come into play. I think there is a side to that argument. I don't know that. I, I think I'm with you mostly, but like it just, I don't know. I can see where people might have an issue with it. I, um, I think, it, I mean, because I was looking at a couple of times where because of Travolta's movements, either in dance numbers or in, you know, tight shots with him and Walken, you can see like the the bunching up of the fat suit to almost... To, to 
an unnatural position and it's a little distracting, but like, but not th that much. I mean, and to be honest, you know, um, as a point to that last thing, let's go back to Shakespeare. Like dudes played women all the time, <laughs> long, be long before, uh, long before divine started doing stuff like, yeah, you know, people wore blackface too. I don't think that argument. Well, yeah, 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 okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to think that Shakespearean times were the most, uh, enlightened, uh, period. And in... no, I was just talking <laughs> more about the craft of like, sure, well, yeah. you know, anyway, I, I just mostly liked that review because I pictured Bette Midler reading it being like, yeah, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Grolio says, uh, after watching the movie, the first thing that pops in my head is a musical made for fat people to feel good. Don't know if that's true, but smells like propaganda from a mile away. The funny scenes are the ones where Michelle Pfeiffer and Christopher Walken appear. Oh, and to make it clear, Michelle Pfeiffer steals the whole movie from... Uh, Nikki Blotsky. Now, the musical part, the songs are not long, but very long. At least 10 minutes a song. I needed to fast forward through the goddamn songs. Two words more, and the vote I'm giving it is awful movie. As friendly advice, I would say, don't waste your time watching crap like this. It feels like some of these people are watching a, a musical that hate musicals. And what, like, what were you <laughs> expecting? People complaining about there being too many songs or the... It, uh, obviously that guy's being he's over, he's exaggerating by saying the songs are 10 minutes long they're they're like two and three minutes long they're pretty short songs but yeah uh, there's some like, people that's, that that get, seems surprised by musicals there's some people that don't even know what they're watching uh or what it even was about before watching it i don't know i i usually when i go for these reviews i go to imdb letterbox and amazon like i'll look at the uh, amazon prime reviews any one stars there a very apparently the biggest issue you can find on Amazon for these are one-star reviews because I haven't checked it recently, but at least at first, when you would order Hairspray 2007 on Amazon Prime Streaming, you would get the movie Fracture from 2007, which wow. <laughs> uh, is a psychological legal crime thriller starring Anthony Hopkins and Ryan Gosling and directed by Gregory Hoblin. <laughs> It's the story of a man who shoots his unfaithful wife and then engages in a battle of wits with a young assistant district attorney. Starring Anthony Hopkins, Ryan Gosling. Uh, there's some other people in there. Uh, I just like the idea that somebody missed the title card altogether. It was like, this is the remake of Hairspray? <laughs> <laughs> Where is John Travolta? <laughs> but uh, literally, like, there are like 30 one-star reviews of this movie. Or and they're all Amazon just fracture. Yeah, John just said <laughs> the wrong thing. What about Katie? One star. This is the absolute last movie I expected to see Christopher Walken and John Travolta play a married couple in. <laughs> what was the first? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Some of these just intrigue me. The Gabriel Ram half star. I am extremely unsettled by John Travolta in this movie. I hate musicals, but I sat down to watch this because of somebody else. Thanks to this movie, though, I pinpointed why I hate musicals so much. And it's the reason why I hate Catholic Mass on Sundays. If you cut out the singing, the whole thing could have been over in 20 minutes. The music isn't good. I hate when the movie just stops to just show singing and dancing. Anyway, Hairspray. Yeah, man, not into it. John Travolta was revolting as whatever that was. 
a little girl wanting to be famous is also not a great storyline. There's also a race thing going on, but it's just white people doing the bare minimum and then looking like heroes because of it. The little girl straight up initiates a fight with police and runs away immediately. Whatever themes they tried to sell in this movie were shoved down our throats to make it as obvious as possible because we're fucking dumb. I saw this on Broadway in New York, by the way, and I hate it now in this movie just as much as I did then. I'm, I'm really getting tired of the anti-musical rhetoric of some of these reviews here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand uh, why people sit down to watch a musical when they don't like musicals. I mean, also, I don't, I don't know why people don't like musicals because I think, I love and even this guy. He at least he at least knew he didn't like musicals. He said it was because of somebody else. He set it down, but I th- he sat down and watched it. But I think at that point you you should immediately consider not mentioning the musical aspects of the musical and your hated review of this right. Movie. If you already know that you went in not lo- not being a fan of musicals, yeah, we've already established you don't like that part. Oh oh, one star. Imagine the most white savior person you can. Now imagine if that person could dance. A movie has never filled me with as much rage as this one. It gets a single star for the music and cast, but miss me with every single piece of other shit in it. Wow, that's a intense. <laughs> <laughs> Fuzzy, one star family movie night. I picked this because I wanted music and bright colors and figured the kids would enjoy it. And they did, but I kind of I kind of hated it. Travolta's performance is ostentatiously unostentatious. A mess of overdone accent and look at me self-concealment. And the movie as a whole is an uncritical mass of boomer cliches. Dancing equals sex equals revolution. Black people is amiable opportunities for white people to show their virtue. And social change is generational imperative. It kills me that the movie's argument against segregation is young people like this more than this is the right thing to do. There are some fun performances. Zach Efron's genuinely charming as a gawky team, trying hard to be a cool team. James Marston is, as always, fantastic. Christopher Walken's miraculous ability to float while dancing is undimmed. But they're all stuck with such a dull, generic bunch of songs and a script that never lets anything surprise you. Wow. They went in. They did. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, Morris says, this movie sucks. It's rife with seemingly earnest performative activism and white saviorism. It leaves a sour taste in my mouth. And if it was trying to capture the campy satire of the original, they fell miserably. Other than a few great lines, it totally missed the mark when it comes to self-awareness. It lacks all the wonder dynamics of the first one, especially with the parents. Oh my God, I hate John Travolta in this. Fuck that man. This was awful. I felt sick whenever he was on screen. I also hate musicals. There was no reason. (laughs) There was no reason to turn this into a musical. The songs range from bad to barely at par. And it was too sexual for no reason. Overall, it's a shallow mess with very little good to be said about it. I did not have a good time. First one's great. This one is skip. There are a lot of people who passionately dislike John Travolta's portrayal in this. Oh, uh, I skipped like, most of them that had a problem yeah. with his accent. There were I so love it. I think his accent's out. hilarious. It's like the most, like, just over-the-top Baltimore accent. It makes me think of that Mr. Ray, remember, that we talked about at the beginning of this series, that John, that John Waters was imitating when he was the narrator of Pink Flamingos. I was going to say, I saw so many reviews that were like, what city did this fucker think he was in? 
I mean, it's just like the most over the top, but I think it's funny. And I don't know. I like his performance in this. I mean, I don't know. A lot of these people, there's a lot of, a lot of those reviews uh, other than that. And other than the people who don't like musicals, which I don't know why you're even watching this. That doesn't make any sense to me, but a lot of them also seem to have an issue with the movie's portrayal of like segregation and stuff, which again, like, we're not trying to change the world with this movie. John Waters wasn't trying to change the world with the original movie. It's not supposed to be this like life, you know, mind changing portrayal of what segregation was of a fight against segregation in the sixties. You know, that's, that's part of the story. Obviously it's a major, it's the, the biggest part of the story, but this isn't like a message movie necessarily, mm-hmm. nor was the original one. Like we talked about on the last episode. I see the thing is, is like, I try to be empathetic here to like, what would people be thinking in this situation? And it goes back to what, uh, or I said with like Todd, where we, we talk about that, like with John Travolta, like, you know, we've had issues recently with, uh, Scarlett Johansson was going to play a trans woman right? and people are like, why don't you just cast a trans woman? instead of Scarlett Johansson playing this role. And if Divine, even though it's weird, Divine is a gay man, a drag queen playing that role. And so you're casting John Travolta to play that role. John Travolta is neither gay nor a drag queen uh, in a secondary thing. So you're only doing it because that's what the other movie did it. I could see some people having an issue. Now, dude, I'm a cis white guy. I, I shut up because most of the time, because the, you know, I know I can stand to shut up a lot of the time. So it's, uh, I, I, I don't have a problem necessarily with any of this stuff, but I am trying to be empathetic to see like where some people could, I could see where there are things. I somehow I ended up down at, at because one thing that did bother me about this movie is that, and I'm trying to remember back to our first time talking about Hairspray, but in Hairspray, I did feel like John Waters handled the actual segregation issue a little bit better. And that he did handle the biting aspect, like the, there was some commentary in there and he was better at handling it than this movie. This movie candy coats everything. It's just like a, well, going back to what we were talking about with the music, the reason I thought it was funny when we talked about the music and Team America was I was like, man, that's so funny because one thing I thought of when I was trying to think about my feelings of this is I was like, this movie treats racism like I was like, because there are musicals that handle stuff a little more seriously and handle things as actual issues. And I'm like, what about, like, I don't know. And I thought of like, Rit. And I was like, this is like if you took Rit and you did what Team America did. You'd have that song at the very beginning. It's like, everybody has AIDS. Right. We all have AIDS. And I'm like, that's what this movie is, kind of, with racism. And I was like, this is, I yeah. was like, it's not, I don't know. And I was like, am I just overthinking it? Am I, I don't know, because I was looking at stuff like, another thing I said that I would have a point on was they cut out the whole amusement park thing. And that actually caught my eye. That whole scene is like they throw a cherry bomb in the middle of the thing. Police think it's gunfire. They beat the fuck out of one of the black guys. And there is actual shit in there. This movie wipes that completely out. Tracy decides 
that like, you know what we should do? We should create a protest that we should do it. That was supposed to be Maybell. She thought of that. These black people are sitting there and they are perfectly fine with Negro Day. They're okay with it the whole time in the fucking musical. They're like, this is just the way it is. It ain't no thing. And it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like this white girl comes along and teaches you, you could do better if you just. Well, Motormouth Maybell is in the same place that she's the one, she's the one who tells them like, we can't be okay with things being the way they are. Like, that's not Tracy that says that. It's, I mean, Tracy brings up doing a protest, but then Motormouth Maybell is the one who tells everyone there in her record shop, like, we gotta, we can't just say that this is okay to, con- to continue to exist this way. And she's the one that fires them up. But I did read that one review, and it even stood out to me that, like, yeah. And then she starts the riot and she just runs away. Yeah, it was. Yes, <laughs> that, that does happen. Like, yeah. But, and I'm like, but they wow. tell, I'm like, they, they can tell her to run. Like they do, uh, Motormouth Maybell does tell her to, you got to get out of here when that happens. So she doesn't just run out of like cowardice. She runs because she's been told to. And then she does also say that she's going to turn herself in afterwards. Yeah. But in that, like Maybell starts the protest. Tracy gets uh, arrested. Maybell sets out on how to free her. Like they're given some fucking like ownership of their lives. And, it's like, wow, I don't know. For some reason, when I was watching it this time, I did start thinking about it. So I did start looking for it. I did start, I was like, am I overthinking that or would anybody else think that? And if you look, there are plenty of people that have that issue with this movie. And it's, yeah. I have the issue with Hairspray in general and especially with the musical version that are just like, we could just, because yeah, I knew there would always be people with like, you know, you're saying it's not a world changing movie or whatever, but there are going to be people that have an issue of like, Oh, we can cure racism with dancing around and singing. Like that was a thing. Uh, like as if it's not political policies and structures of society that were causing this in the sixties. It was just like, Oh, the kids, they were, you know, they taught us better. We're all good now. I mean, I, I I understand that point of view, and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but I don't think that that's. I mean, the the whole the whole white savior complex is is an issue with with dozens of movies, and I do think that at least you know, especially with Motormouth Maybell, there there is uh, some representation of a, an actual black person taking charge in this movie, uh, but I do think that this movie was. It, it is an adaptation of a Broadway show, the, a Broadway show that was created for mass appeal. And yes, it does. It absolutely waters down the real issues that were facing people in the early 60s. No pun uh, intended. As, as Well, as did John Waters' original movie, though. I mean, he, he we talked about that a little bit last episode, where he knew that this movie's not like, gonna cure racism. Like, this movie's not made for that. He, he was making a comedy about the early 60s where segregation was a major part of the plot. The movie wasn't designed as a message movie. The musical does make some changes that waters that down a little bit more. I, I agree with you on that. Uh, I don't think that there's any way to show, you know, in the broad in the in the Broadway on stage doing the amusement park thing was pro- that was probably a practical choice because how do you do that on stage, right? Uh, yeah, they could have rewritten the this movie that way. But I also really like the way that 
uh, I Know Where I've Been, the song that Mabel sings during the protest. I like the way that it works in the film a lot because of the placement of it, which is different than the placement in the original Broadway show. But we, you can watch this movie and I mean, it does, it has, it has its heart in the right place, right? As it, the way, as far as all of that stuff goes, it has its heart in the right place. And it's what it's showing, I think, is that the youth, you know, the film's teenage characters, they're the ones who carry that heart. And this is very much a film about youth cultures, optimistic thinking about how the future can be better than the present is. Uh, because they're the ones who initiate change. It's yes, it's Tracy, but it's also Seaweed and Penny and all the other kids. And little Inez ha- has a much bigger role here than she did even in the Broadway show. In the Broadway show, Tracy wins Miss Hairspray at the end, not little Inez. So they did they did make that change, which I think is a very significant change and and much better in my opinion than than it worked in the Broadway show. But you know, the optimistic thinking of these teenagers in this, yes, it can come across as a little naive, but teenagers are naive. <laughs> they Like they, they are, uh, or at least they're not as jaded as like old fart, like, like us might be, you know, to me, that's part of the appeal of the movie is how much heart and optimism it has. Even if it's not a little, if, if, even if it's not necessarily realistic, you know, it's still that optimism and that, that belief that things can be better than they are now. Uh, but there's something about this movie that when at, at the end, like when they say the Cordy Collins show is now and forever integrated, something about the the infectious joy of the way the movie plays out. When you're watching that, you can't help but like for a moment be like, oh, yeah, you guys just cured racism. Like, it's just like because you're so happy because of the experience of watching the movie, if that makes sense, that yeah. for a moment you're like, yeah, we did it. Then, then of course, you're like, oh, wait, this is just a movie. Ain't shit changed in 50 years, hardly. <laughs> you know, that that's the reality we live in. But the mm. movie is such a joyful experience that it it almost tricks your brain into thinking like, yeah, we look at what these kids did back in 1962. Like, they fixed it, you know, just because... <laughs> Because the movie makes you feel so happy, like during the course of watching it, it's like it it does this thing to your brain where it tricks you into thinking it tricks you into being naive as naive as the characters can sometimes be. Does that speak more to the st- general structure and nature of musicals? It might. Yeah, it, ve- it very well might, uh, at least in a musical well, like this. It's a very upbeat, like happy musical yeah. i was you gonna know. say i felt that way sort of and then i was trying to think of movies that deal with like harder issues you know like i don't know you know i'm not here to promote rent as the greatest musical of all time and people have found it problematic now for crying out loud but like it you know at least treated certain issues that were happening in the 90s very seriously as far as like what was going on and and you know and yes there was aids and there was drug abuse and there was all this stuff going on in rent um I, it, but it's rent, just, rent is I, I, also like a much more serious endeavor than hairspray is, you know? Yeah. Like but we keep saying John Waters didn't have a message movie. And the guy in every interview right now says this was my most like sneaky movie ever because I did it so that even racists love it. And I was making a movie against racism. And like, so he clearly had the thought. I, I think you, 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 
you run a dangerous game again. I, I'm all I'm all I'm really trying to say is that I don't begrudge anybody who finds a lot of issues with this. Who, sure, who, I mean, I I get where they're bothered. coming from. I agree more with that stuff with the uh, the white savior stuff and and it's people's view on how it approaches segregation more so than I do like the John Travolta thing, which I think is just people looking for something to complain about uh, because yeah. again. The, the character is not a gay character. It doesn't have to be played by a drag queen. Although if it were made today, it probably would be played by a drag queen. Like somebody who appear, has appeared on Drag Race I think or it something. Would be. Which, I think that, today... Because yeah. now that like something like Drag Race has been on the air for so many years, at the time in 2007, that wasn't the case. Uh, but now, yeah, you could probably get somebody who was famous for being a drag queen to be in that role. But also like Adam Shankman is gay. Mark Shaman is gay. Uh, the producers, uh, Craig, uh, what's his name? Craig Zayden and Neil Marin, they're gay. Like these, and they all wanted to get John Travolta in this role. So obviously it wasn't an issue for them. Yeah, yeah. it's so weird because like the thing about it is like, um, on one hand, I'm like, actors act. And I'm like, people should try to put themselves in roles but i also get casting people that are from situations where they may not have access to roles i actually ended up down a whole rabbit hole where i wasn't even familiar really that much with aversive racism and which is talking about like uh, essentially like in a movie like this that you cast a bunch of black people but you cast them to act black like they need to act like black people act that's the thing they do and then mm. how that also promotes black people to act more black so that they can get roles like this, because these are the roles that are available for being offered to them. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it's like, you better act like a black guy in this movie. Yeah. And uh, so this needs to be you. So they get really adept at being a black guy. And so that's like a whole other topic. Anyway, I'm not even qualified to speak so much on that, except that I was reading a bunch about it, but it also gets weird with like, I mean, because because I mentioned like Scarlett Johansson, like playing the trans world. Where that well, see, like I think that's a very different. Like, I think that's a very different issue because there are trans people who are who are looking for representation, you know. Yeah, where I was going to go with it this time, though, also is that like where you might say actors get to act and stuff. It's like, can they fully understand that scenario? And it's also like there are different struggles that people go through. I can see people having offense to. I grew up as a fat kid, you know, but at no point in my life would I dare say like, oh, I also get what it's like to be black and you're not included. I'm a fat person and I know people don't like me as much because I'm fat. And it's like, that's not the same. It's yeah, not the not, same not, thing. Not the same thing. They're not equal. <laughs> it's like, yeah. uh, and it feels like at some points in this movie, it's like also trying to push that a little bit. Like, oh, we all get it. We all want to be included. And on one hand, I get the optimistic side of that. We can all strive for better. We can all hope for the world to be better and accepting of everyone and all of that. But I also, like I said, I also get that I don't want to begrudge anybody who's also like, uh, bro, not the same thing. Like, why are yeah, you just yeah, no, I, all these things and yeah. just making it all like uh, bubblegum? No, I mean, I completely understand that. If somebody has an issue with that aspect, that's that's going back to the original John Waters screenplay, you know, because that's the that's inherent there as well. So putting aside the movie's message, as far as like from a pure enjoyment factor, had you well, first of all, had you guys seen this before prior to this? This is the first nope. time watch for you, Todd? 
Yeah, I've seen this yeah, movie like first. I've seen this movie like thirty times. I watch it a lot. Oh. I just, it just, I just love this movie. It's just fun. I love the soundtrack and I love the the song. So I've seen it like literally, like I mean, I don't know how many times. A lot. Mm. <laughs> um, so from just a pure enjoyment factor, where were you? I mean, I've already shown my hand, obviously, but where were you guys at? What what, what did you think? And I don't know. I know, I know Gary likes musicals. I don't know where you stand on musicals, actually, Todd, because the only one we've talked about on the show is Little Shop of Horrors, which is kind of a crossover musical, even for people who don't necessarily like musicals. Right, right. Um, I enjoy a good musical. Um, I've been to a lot of musicals. I've watched a lot of musicals. You know, I, I love a good earworm as much as anybody else. Uh, in terms of this, I liked it. I mean, just strict, you know, not picking it apart or anything. I liked it. I don't know that I would revisit it that much just because I think my taste in musicals, it tends to lean, uh, you know, a little bit darker or, you know, to more um, uh, odder material, like, you know, something a little bit stranger, I think. Uh, I mean, I like The Greatest Showman. Um, you know, I like La La Land. It's, you know, very Hollywood story coming of age type thing. Um, I love, I like Sweeney Todd, you know, I like Depp and Sweeney Todd. Um, so, I mean, my, my taste is my, my taste in general is all over the map. So my taste in musicals is no different. (laughs) Um, but yeah, in terms of this, I think, you know, the really, the only thing that really stuck out to me that was kind of I mean, I didn't hate it, but it was, I mean, I acknowledge that it was definitely a choice was um, the, the really thick Boston accent on seemingly the only person, or not Boston, Baltimore, Baltimore, the really thick Baltimore accent on seemingly the only person affected by the Baltimore accent is, is Edna. Um, So I was like, okay, I mean, that's a choice. But, uh, but other than that, I, I had fun with it. It, it, you know, it was, I'm not, I'm not scathing, you know, it's, I'm glad I watched it. I cat watched it with me again. This is another one, uh, you know, mark it down fellas. It's another cinema shock movie that I was actually able to get my wife to watch with me. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. I, I, I like it just fine. Um, would I revisit it again? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to complain if somebody else is watching it, but like, I wouldn't be like, Hey, hairspray. Like that's probably not going to happen for me, but yeah, I liked it just fine. I, uh, I felt the same way. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I'd seen this when it first came out. I remember. And I was like, all right, fine. You know, like I, I didn't think that much of it. And, uh, and until this hadn't thought much of it again and i don't think i had seen the original or if i had i didn't remember it when we saw that but now that i saw the original this one like like i said for some reason i don't know man maybe it was an activist mode or something but i thought of all that (laughs) stuff and started seeking out i was like this is fucking bubblegum as shit on some actual things and i was like this is this is real weird and uh but also but also uh there was something that struck me weird about the music and like it like Good morning, Baltimore is an earworm. Uh, there, there's some good songs in it. Uh, I think, I think, Good Morning yeah. Baltimore is like the quintessential like Broadway show opening tune. Uh, yeah, you know, like yeah. that is yeah. how you, you start can't a deny show. That one. And I've got no like personal issue with the movie. Like, I think it's fine. Um, I, 
I think, like I said, I, I could see why people would find it problematic. For what it's worth, I found, I, I looked up Reddit threads because I was really curious about this. And I started searching and just like people were like, what do black people think about hairspray? You know, and there are black people that are fine with hairspray. And there are black people that are like, nah, fuck it. <laughs> they're like you know so it's a it's a mix so it's it's fine yeah. it's it's just it is what it is it exists but um i missed the actual 60s music in this movie like the the literal soundtrack for like john waters movie and yeah but that would be hard i think to translate into a musical unless you were doing like a jukebox kind of musical which would be hard to tell this story if they're just singing like existing is, songs, I never you know? thought I'd say this but uh because John Waters did the movie already like I could take or leave this movie like it's not <laughs> as think good it's, as John Waters version I honestly Man, think not, that it's a vastly different experience than John Waters movie I, I I think that they they I mean yes it's the same story but they are very they take incredibly different approaches to the material I think I'm just saying I could see this movie as the movie that's made in a fucking like HBO comedy series where like somebody is making a musical <laughs> and they're like, the director is just like, uh, you know, like, oh, you know what you should do here? The police are coming. You should dance. And then it gets the police to dance away too. And it's like, <laughs> you know, and we'll talk about it on Negro Day. Like, what, excuse me? Like, no, we're having Negro Day on Thursday because we really feel like we should bring that back. It's celebration though, you know, of Negro Day. <laughs> and they're like, I don't think that's okay. And they're like, no, but, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm kind of pudgy, you know, so I get it. It's, it's, <laughs> I get what it's like. And it's like, I, I don't know. I was thinking of that the second time I watched this and I'm like, that's fucking how they made this movie. That feels like what would happen to make this movie. I mean, I, I get, I get that. I mean, it, it like it, this movie is it, it, same with the original, but the, the, it's view of like it's portrayal of the, the civil rights movement is let's say less than accurate to, to history. Uh, but this, I, for this movie, I mean, like I said, I like musicals a lot anyway, but I love the music in this movie. I think the songs are super infectious. I think the dance choreography is super fun. And I think one of the biggest assets to this movie that, that, that make it very successful to me is the cast. I think the cast is just really outstanding. I think Nikki Blonsky is wonderful. I mean, we, you know, when, when Waters described Ricky Lake after casting her in the original film, he said that something along the lines of if, if the audience doesn't love Tracy, the movie doesn't work. And, and that's the case here as well, which is why I think that they, they kind of crushed it with their casting with Nikki Blonsky. Cause she is just a big ball of joyful energy that you can't help, Stay but tuned. like, love watching uh she's sweet she's you know she, her her character is sweet but mischievous she doesn't take shit from anyone you know it's it's a it's a shame that like this movie should have made nikki blonsky a star but in the, like this what 16 years since it's released like she's continued to work steadily but she's never done anything that's like as high profile even, even approaching the the profile of this but then there's the rest of the the cast where you've got i mean i i mentioned John, I, I like John Travolta a lot in this. I think he's having a lot of fun. Uh, Christopher Walken, just getting to watch Christopher Walken dance is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you know, Amanda Bynes is perfect, I think, as Penny. Uh, Allison Janney is, I mean, she's great at everything. Elijah Kelly is insanely talented. 
And like, I feel like we should be seeing him in more stuff. He's the guy who plays seaweed. He's very good oh, in this. Both he's, as he's a, so good as yeah. a performer, mm-hmm. as a singer. Like he's he's really great. I mean, Zac Efron kills it. Queen Latifah's Maybell is incredible. I mean, her performance of Big Blonde and Beautiful is one of the best numbers in the movie, I think. But uh, I, I think the cast all around, and I've already talked about how much I like James Marsden in this. I mean, there's just the cast all around. I think they, everyone is perfectly cast in this movie. It, and the combination of that with a bunch of songs that I really like. I mean, my favorites are Without Love, I think is really great. Uh, and I love Your Timeless to me, uh, both for the song and for the the way that it's filmed and getting to watch John Travolta and, and Christopher Walken dance in that it's my favorite sequence in the movie. I just think it's yeah. a ton of fun. Well, can I just say that mm. if you're curious, uh, where, <laughs> where this is not funny. Uh, <laughs> the most recent, of, uh, so in 2008, uh, around October, <laughs> um, uh, there was an incident in the airport between Nikki Blonsky and uh, Bianca Golden, the then contestant of America's Top Model, according to uh, Today.com, there was a heated exchange uh, where Bianca Golden and her family were wanting to have seats at the airport. uh, And this was in the uh, Bahamas or somewhere. And uh, Nikki Blonsky was holding the seats. Her and her father were holding the seats. So they couldn't have them and then called them the N-word. And oh, no. this led to a physical altercation in which uh, Bianca's mother said something and Nikki Blosky's father got up and punched her in the face. Oh, Jesus <laughs> and, Christ. <laughs> and it said, uh, according to she was on the Tyra Banks show later, Bianca Gold was, said the argument escalated to a physical fight. Uh, Carl Blosky punched my mom. He knocked her out. Uh, he hit my mom with such force she stumbled back, and when she stumbled back, the whole Blotsky family got up and attacked my mom. Uh, Nikki took her foot and kicked my mom in her vagina, and knocked. And my mom was eventually knocked out. But Nikki kicked my mom. I grabbed her arm. She grabbed my earring. Her mom sat on her to get her off of me because she saw what was happening. And uh, anyway, Nikki and her t- father Carl were arrested uh and uh take it in the charges were later dropped but uh it was just i imagine that's a that's a fun situation well yeah. that's probably probably didn't help her career at all yeah. <laughs> that's what i was saying yeah. earlier you're like haven't seen much else i'm like yeah you know there's sometimes there's stuff <laughs> when did yeah. that happen well, i mean when was that what year this was the year after, actually. Oh, 2008? Like, was... So, yeah. Okay, that yeah. does explain a lot, then. Because <laughs> yeah. she's really that good was... in this. So, it's like, why didn't she get more roles? But, okay. Now, I guess that's probably a factor. <sighs> yeah, I'm laughing just because it's just, like, it's ridiculous. It's like, a ridiculous... It's like, what? what is this? It's a ridiculous <laughs> scene to probably have uh, have witnessed, as well. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, there was a wow. whole thing there. And, wow. Uh, well, I mean, a few years after after this, uh, Amanda Bynes kind of dropped off the planet, and yeah, but know. she had some mental health issues. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like, like she wasn't being like a shitty person or anything. She's just no, she's yeah. just addressing some some of her own yeah. issues. Yeah, so she which, has, and then yeah, and, uh, then Christopher Walken. <sighs> Still Christopher Walken. Still crushing it. Did, <laughs> did you guys see him? Did you guys see him as Captain Hook in, in Peter Pan? When he did the live I remember, but I didn't watch it. It was hard to watch. It, yeah. it was like, oh no. He, he, well, he, I mean, he, he just it was like, oh, that's 
this isn't the this isn't the Christopher Walken we remember, and it was just it, man, he's oh, still fantastic yeah, it was, it was and bad. stuff, right? He's still good. I mean, but but live television is very difficult. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. like no matter no matter who you are or how good you are, like that's a that's that's tough. Yeah. Um, do you guys have any favorite songs in it? Yeah, well, I mean, I noticed right off the bat the Good Morning Baltimore, and I distinctly recall was just like oh okay, that's how you start that, a musical that, that is and, and honestly <laughs> you can't stop the beat is a great final number like that's how oh, you end yeah. the musical yeah big, i was gonna say the bookends are the best to me yeah yeah they're they're great yeah those are two of the, the best in the movie but yeah i think big blonde and beautiful is really really great but there's something about your timeless to me it's just the performance of yeah. them and i think it's a really sweet song too i mean it's, it a, it's a song that is from the point of view of two people who are getting older who are still committed to each other and i think it's just a real uh, it's very sweet and very funny at the same time mm-hmm. i give all credit to that though to travolta and walken um, oh uh, yeah i think those two together like they do such a sweet job with each other mm-hmm. and like they really they, do and them and and i agree that them dancing together is just like probably the height of the movie honestly yeah like, it's like it's magic it really is i mean uh i i think that a lot of the movie works for me really well because uh adam shankman who i i would not say is like one of my favorite directors by any means i haven't seen several of his movies i've seen this one i've seen uh I've seen Rock of Ages, which is a movie. I was going to say he did Rock of Ages. Yeah, which I it's a bit it's a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. I really like Rock of Ages, (laughs) while also admitting that like it's not a good movie, but I still enjoy it. Uh, (laughs) Well, it stars Russell Brand, which is super popular right now. No, there's there's a love there's a love song between Russell Brand and Alec Baldwin in it that probably is going to play a lot differently now than it did (laughs) ten years ago when I first watched that movie. But (laughs) but yeah, I think Shankman's background as a choreographer and and a director like i think that helps the movie because i think he understands both the language of live theater and the language of cinema you know because those two things are wildly different experiences and i think his his background in both helps him to avoid the the pitfalls of other musicals turned movies because he understands that some things work well on stage that don't necessarily work well on film or he needs to change how it's portrayed on film for it to work like there's a lot of stuff going on here that his background as a choreographer and a stage director really, I think helps the movie because he's also directed several, like what he's like five or six movies into his career at this point. So he also knows what works on film and which ones to tweak in one way or the other to make it work on this movie. You know, it's kind of like seeing a, a martial arts movie that was made by somebody who very well understands the world of martial arts or is a practitioner themselves. Like right. they know what looks good and you know, and how it works. Yeah. But they also that. have to understand the the language of cinema because not right. And, exactly. And Bruce, That's Bruce I mean. Lee, I think is a great example of that because he even knew that, Hey, I have to slow down my punches. I got to slow down. Yeah. To, to make them look right on film. It, it looks mm-hmm. cool in real life, with, you know? Yeah. Like with wrestling. You know, like yeah, you, you can do like regular punches, but those aren't as fun as like Steve Austin, like rearing way. Yeah, exactly. Coming yeah. In. So, you gotta <laughs> gotta do what works for the camera, right? Right. Exactly. Do you guys have any further viewing? Any movies that like if someone enjoys this or something that that would pair well with this or anything that you would recommend to our our listeners? Yeah, I uh, I've got one, and uh, in case in case you haven't heard it mentioned enough in the episode already. 
uh, from 1986, directed by Frank Oz, written by Howard Ashman, based on the original film by Roger Corman and Charles B. Griffith, featuring Christopher Guest and Bill Murray as Arthur Denton. I love that you the the most the most <laughs> random roles to mention yeah. <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> It's obviously uh, a little shop of horrors. Yeah, is, is a little shop of horrors. I, yeah. I, yeah, if you're going if you're going with a musical, yeah, let keep the party going. Just yeah, get another uh high energy, uh full of earworms. Uh yeah, it's I, I think this would make a great double feature. Yeah, just watch uh Grease or Footloose or Coyote Ugly or something. <laughs> I don't know. Only one of those is a musical. <laughs> yeah, but they all just have the the story down you get it (laughs) (laughs) a very very enthusiastic recommendations from gary horn today (laughs) i mean i would probably say grease as well uh just because make it a john travolta double feature you know watch grease i would recommend grease too but i I haven't seen it in a long time and i don't remember if i like it or not (laughs) but grease or mama mia why not uh mama mia came out mama mia is great it's fun uh and that came out what a year after this and it's another you know, music Broadway show turned movie musical that also is a jukebox musical, or you could watch Rock of Ages for an Adam Shankman double feature. Speaking of jukebox musicals, I'd be down with that. That'd be good. Uh, I don't know why you're so anti Coyote Ugly. Uh, I mean, I like Coyote Rods, Ugly. Can't I just... fight the moonlight. They sing that in there. So, yeah, but that's not a musical. <laughs> the dance of the bard of music. So, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, so did Pee Wee Herman. It's true. How about She's the Man, starring a man to Well, for years, uh, New Line wanted John Waters to write a sequel to the original Hairspray, setting it in the late 60s. But as we mentioned on our last episode, uh, he didn't really have any desire to do it. But then in 2009, after the success of the musical film, New Line came back again, asking Waters to once again write a sequel. And this time he did it. He wrote a script. The sequel was called White Lipstick, which was one of the working titles Waters had used for Hairspray when he was writing that one. Uh, in describing the script, Waters said, it's about when the real 60s hit and the Corny Collins show isn't popular anymore. It's the new hip coming in, which really happened. And then other plot lines that Waters discussed for the sequel included one where Link pretends to be British in order to help his singing career, because this is like after the Beatles have become popular. And uh, and he has pimples on his forehead under a Beatles wig that he uh, wears, uh, and the pimples sing to him. Uh, little Inez turns into an, an Angela Davis radical, and Tracy is still famous, but is being ridiculed for her weight, while Edna has slimmed down to the point where Wilbur has lost interest in her. So uh, it sounds very much like a John Waters script, basically. I, I know. As you were reading this, I was like, man, what world has occurred that I'm like, I miss John Waters doing this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that definitely sounds like a John Waters uh, script. But the project never got past the script uh, page. And, you know, while it, it was intended to be a follow up to this musical more so than the original film, they didn't actually get to the point in the development where they ever wrote any songs for it. So that never happened. He would like write in his script where a song should be, but no songs ever. It didn't make it that far to where they got into the songwriting aspect of it. 
But there was still one more hairspray production to come. So back in 2013, NBC decided to revive this old tradition from like the 50s and 60s of showing live broadcasts of popular musicals on TV. And the first one they aired was The Sound of Music Live. It was a big success. It was such a success that they followed it up the next year with Peter Pan and the following year with The Wiz, which actually featured Hairspray's own seaweed, Elijah Kelly, as the Scarecrow, which is the the role, I believe, that uh, Michael Jackson played in the film version of The Wiz. Mm -hmm. So after those... Those were all successful. They all got good good ratings. So their next choice for a live musical broadcast was Hairspray. And they hired Harvey Firestein himself to adapt it for television, in addition to reprising his role as Edna Turnblad. And his version was very close to what had been seen on Broadway with only one song cut. There's a song called The Big Doll House, which is not it, it got cut from the movie version as well. So that's not in, in Hairspray Live. And then there are two other songs uh, that had been added that were added to his version that had been written specifically for the movie that weren't in the original Broadway show. But otherwise, as far as like the, we talked about how they moved around songs in the timeline a little bit in the movie. Uh, yeah. His version that aired on NBC was a little, was closer structurally to the original Broadway show. Hmm. So in this version, uh, a newcomer named Maddie uh, Balio was cast as the new Tracy Turnblad after a national nationwide search. Although Ricky Lake and Marissa Jarrett Winnicore have both have cameos as workers for Mr. Pinkies. Uh, Ricky Lake has a cameo in the movie too. I don't think we mentioned she's like a William Morris agency agent, I think yeah, in the audience. Yeah. yeah. It's very small, but she's there. Uh, Martin short it plays Wilbur in the, in hairspray live, which is, wonderful casting uh Kristen Chenoweth plays Velma uh Ariana Grande plays Penny Jennifer Hudson is Motormouth Maybell uh Andrea Martin is Prudy Pringleton and Sean Hayes appears as Mr. Pinky and then you've got Billy Eichner and Rosie O'Donnell both in like small parts Rosie O'Donnell plays like the gym teacher uh but Hairspray Live like every previous version of Hairspray that's been made was a huge success something like nine million people watched it live like the night that it aired, which in the, even in 2000, what was it? 2016. Uh, most people were still streaming at that point, but it, people tuned in live to watch it. I didn't, I watched it on Hulu the next day, I think, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was a big success. And there's something about hairspray. I think that's timeless. I think there's a reason that people go, keep going back to this particular well. And I think a lot of its success goes back to water's initial concept for it. You know, he, he managed to go pretty much as mainstream as anyone could go. I mean, he's got a Broadway musical on his resume, right? John Waters went from doing underground movies to Broadway. Uh, but he never lost a sense of what makes his films unique. So as we record this episode, John Waters, just a, a few days ago, like within the last week, received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So for a guy who began his career making underground comedies that were designed to shock the squares, like that's a pretty big deal. That's, a, that's quite the career arc. But, you know, there is a reason that we're still talking about John Waters more than half a century after his career began. His work is very distinct. He has a unique voice that's instantly recognizable, as instantly recognizable as any of our other great auteurs. Like you can watch a Terry Gilliam movie and immediately know it's a Terry Gilliam movie. You can watch a Stanley Kubrick movie and immediately recognize it as a Stanley Kubrick movie because these guys have a very distinct style and a very distinct voice. John Waters' voice might be very different from guys like that, but it's still very much like, this is John Waters. Nobody else could do this. Even people who try to do it are clearly imitating John Waters. So even as he's gone like a little more mainstream, he's always managed, I think, to keep 
a layer of filth in all of his work. Uh, I mean, if you for proof, just go look at his last film, at least his last one to date, the NC-17 rated A Dirty Shame. Filled with movie stars, Johnny Knoxville, Selma Blair, you know, it's got big names in it, but it is a dirty movie. And it was rated NC-17 at a time when people weren't making NC-17 movies anymore. But hey, it's John Waters, and that's what he's going to... He's going to make the movie that he wants to make. And I think that's something that I I personally love about him. But A Dirty Shame and Waters' other post-hairspray films uh, are not going to be part of this series. They're going to have to wait until we decide to revisit John Waters in a future series, if that's what the people want, I guess. So let us know if that's something something you want to see. But uh, for now, it's time to move on to our next episode and our next series on this podcast. So we are leaving Mr. Waters behind. Well, fellas, do we want to go ahead and announce the next episode before we go? Because we're not doing a roulette. We're doing something kind of special next the next episode. Oh, uh, so yeah. I think we should I think we should yeah. go ahead and announce it here. So uh, we're normally at the end of one of our series, we're going to do a roulette episode, you know, where we randomly pick a movie. We're not doing that next week. We are going to do a, a roulette episode uh, before our next series starts. But uh, if as of this recording, like a few, what, a couple of weeks ago, we did our first Cinema Shock live event uh kind of a kickoff to the spooky season and it was a screening of the 1922 silent classic horror film nosferatu yeah. so we decided and it was a complete we, success all the women showed their boobs it was so weird <laughs> at the end of it like it was just everybody got naked and i don't know we're gonna do more live events though so look forward to those <laughs> <laughs> So weird. <laughs> like when Gary doesn't know, Gary doesn't know what kind of joke to make, and he just starts talking about his dick or boobs. <laughs> that's the that's the, just, that's the go-to. Yeah. But we decided we would. We were able to like you know talk about some behind-the-scenes stuff, but obviously we did. We were wanting to show the movie and didn't want to talk about it for two and a half hours like we do on our normal podcast episodes. (laughs) We don't want to run people off by doing that, but we wanted to do a deeper dive into the history of that movie because it is such a fascinating history and because it's such a seminal film in the history of not only horror cinema, but cinema in general. So we are going to do an episode as sort of our, let's call it our, the cinema shock Halloween special. Uh, We're going to talk about, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu. It is very easy to find uh, online to stream because it's in the public domain, I think. So it's it's in a lot of places. Just do a little bit of research and make sure the version you're watching is, is a decent version because since it's in public domain, there's a lot of shitty versions of it out there. But uh, we're going to be talking about Nosferatu for Halloween on Cinema Shock, and I'm very much looking forward to it. It's going to be a, a ton of fun. Well, that's it for this week, guys. Nice. Where can you be found on the internet? I am at this is Gary Horn, uh, all spelled out on social <laughs> media. That's on Instagram and Twitter. If you like wrestling, I host uh, This Is Pro Wrestling. This is Pro Wrestling on YouTube and at TIPW Show on Instagram. I also work for the National Wrestling Alliance, and you can access their links in their bio on Instagram at NWA on October 28th. We'll be in Cleveland, Ohio, November the 4th. Fourth, we'll be at Nashville, Tennessee. November the seventeenth and eighteenth, we'll be down in Florida, like Sarasota and somewhere else. I don't remember. I'll tell you later. <laughs> it's on the internet. Uh, also, Twitter doesn't exist anymore, Gary. It's now called X. No, X. 
Well, you know, I just read what's in front of me, like Steve Carell. Uh, nope, that's uh, it's not Steve Carell who does that. It is oh, Ron yeah, yeah. Burgundy who does that. Ron Burgundy and Sorry, I messed up the joke again. <laughs> Talk about your dick. Hurry. Ah, I like movies. <laughs> uh, I'm working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for now on my show, Computer Resume Podcast. Uh, available now wherever you get all of your part. Yep. Todd's Good thing done. you don't talk for a living. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Computer Resume Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, X, Instagram, Letterboxd, D&D Beyond, as long as they behave themselves. Don't talk about your dick. And I am it at is, just it is adequate. My dick is adequate. <laughs> I call mine Samson because when I trim my pubes, I can't get hard anymore. That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> you cut Samson's hair, he's not strong anymore. Come he's, on, read your Bible. I mean, I've I know the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am at Justin underscore bishop on Instagram, and I'm also on some other stuff, but I don't use them. <laughs> the show, well, I'm on Letterboxd. I do use Letterboxd a lot. So Instagram and Letterboxd. Uh, the show is at cinema underscore shock on Instagram, X, Facebook, pretty much everywhere. Uh, check out all of our episodes as well as links to our Discord and our merch at cinemashock.net. Uh, as always, like, r- rate, review, or just share this with all of your friends any way that you know how. Until next time. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny, it's the times they are a-changing. Something's blowing in the wind. Fetch me the keys, would you, hun? That's not even from this movie. I know. <laughs> and I was going to say, did he sing? Did he he did, no, it's, no, he took, Todd took a line from the last movie. And tried to turn it into a song, which doesn't exist in this. Yeah, which is what I did with the opening. I just sang it. <laughs> so I just yeah. took this line and just sang it. Oh. I, this is why you go straight to the Well, it's been. back with our bonus episode why nikki blonsky is a racist <laughs> <laughs> and how weird it is she's the savior white girl in, in hairspray yeah. <laughs>